From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. Each week on the show, we're tackling topics including double agents, disguise, terrorism, and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... Hiding in plain sight. Burkhard Hartmann was a mountain killer. He was in an SS division that operated in Italy and Yugoslavia, and his job was surviving in high altitude and killing partisans, communists, and Jews. His unit killed many, many such people. Within an hour of making the phone call, the area was flooded with secret police looking for us. Can you imagine what it is like to have a dad who is hanged at Nuremberg for the murder of four million human beings? Living with that burden, it's almost impossible to imagine. We had been tasked to get this piece of technical equipment called an explosive reactive armour box. So we hatched a plan to climb on board a train as it left a training area in the dark, get the box off and then jump off the train and join our vehicle some 10 kilometres up the road. A pretty unholy alliance was created between the British and the Americans, former Nazis, former Italian fascists (laughs) and the Vatican. I mean, I was frankly pretty surprised. Today I'm joined by two people for whom the spying game is intrinsically linked with concealment. First, we have multi-award-winning author, professor of law at University College London, a practising barrister at Matrix Chambers, and a documentarian. He's been described as a weapon of mass instruction. Philippe Sands, welcome to The Spying Game. Lovely to be with you, Rory. Absolutely lovely. (laughs) Philippe, I've I've, I've had to praise your CV there, because just listing it in full would take the whole hour. But what do you think it was about that time between the end of the Second World War, the beginning of the Cold War? It's catnip to spy enthusiasts? I mean, I think there can have been no other time like it. It just opens up the imagination. The war had come to an end. A new Cold War was beginning. And into the mix, you throw in particular in the cast of characters I've written about in a book I wrote in a podcast called The Rat Line, the Vatican, Nazis, Soviets, Americans and Brits, the Poles, the Jews. It's a toxic mixture and it, it opens up the imagination. I mean, Rome in the sort of the late 40s joins Berlin in the, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then Saigon in, in, the, in the 20s as a city that you'd love to be transported back to, knowing what we know now about the nests of spies all, all around. Just extraordinary. Yes. Alongside Philippe, we have a cold warrior who is no stranger to operating behind the Iron Curtain, a former army officer who served with the British military liaison mission, Captain Dave Butler. Dave, hi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me along. You were an army officer, Dave, but your unit went above and beyond what we would expect of the military in in Cold War Germany. Perhaps we could start with the mysteriously titled Bricksmiths. What was it and and how did it operate? This was a military liaison mission that was formed um, after the Second World War as part of an Allied get-together after Germany fell. The Russians, the Americans and the French and us decided that we were going to maintain military forces in Germany. Mm -hmm. And as such, we had to have in place military liaison missions whose overt task was to liaise between the various armed forces and basically monitor their movements. The covert side was that we were intelligence gatherers. I mentioned diplomacy. I mean, the vehicles you were in were technically sovereign territory, weren't they? And so you were going around Berlin, wasn't it? And this is in the the middle 80s in vehicles, which were clearly marked military vehicles. They were sovereign territory. You couldn't be dragged out of these vehicles. But inside, what was the mission you were up to? Interesting enough, Berlin was out of bounds to us. Oh, right. We were allowed to roam freely in the rest of the former East Germany from north to south, east to west, except for Berlin, which was, well, there was nothing to be gained in Berlin militarily, intelligence-wise, but in the rest of East Germany, there were like 386,000 Soviet troops deployed, 250,000 East German troops, so about half a million troops and all their associated equipment. Having us out there roaming around all these areas, gathering intelligence, 
was a far bigger prize than perhaps just roaming around Berlin. The vehicles that you were in, were they inviolate? They were sovereign territory? You were, were you safe, in, as it were, because you were carrying out a diplomatic role? What were the rules of engagement? What the Soviets did, and the East Germans, of course, they would stage an accident. So they would ram you, knock you off the road, turn the vehicle over. Then they would use the pretense that they were going in to save the crew. And whilst they were in saving the crew, they found all this spying equipment, all the cameras and other bits and pieces that we carried on the vehicle. And then they would present this through what we call the Soviet External Relations Branch. Our brigadier would be called in in front of Serb and shown all this equipment laid out in front of him. And he would very straight face say, well, no, actually, you know, in the mission, we we promote ornithology and bird watching and all the rest of it. And, and therefore, you know, all of these cameras are only for taking pictures of flora and fauna. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, spying. No, we're not. <laughs> I mean, it was a fascinating place. What perhaps neither of you know that in the summer of 1980, I arrived at the Jagdschloss Glinica, which is a hunting lodge next to the Bridge of Spies. It was actually, so literally, you could see it from, from the hunting lodge, this bridge which assumed extraordinary significance. That was our way in and out of Berlin, the Glinica Brücke or the Bridge of Spies. We weren't allowed to go through Checkpoint Charlie. We had to enter Berlin over the Glienicke Bridge. It was another way of the Stasi and the KGB keeping an eye on our movements. I've made hundreds of trips on the actual bridge. At the height of height of the Cold War, and Berlin itself was fascinating. It seemed to me that you know, West Berlin seemed like it was in, in technicolour. It was full of the, the kind of the life and, and the freedom of a Western capital. And, and the East Berlin, just the other side of the wall, was it mysterious and very, very sinister and rather in, intimidating. Philippe, you mentioned the rat line, and it's an utterly gripping story. And in it, you tell the extraordinary story of the Nazi war criminal, Otto von Wächter, an Austrian who joined the National Socialist Party in his very early 20s in 1923, rose through the ranks as Hitler consolidated his power, and was appointed governor of Galicia, which I think was in occupied Poland, wasn't it? And he was indicted in 1945 for the murder of over 100,000 people. But while his contemporaries and associates were either hanged or committed suicide, he managed to avoid capture, living in the mountains and ultimately in Rome, which, as we saw, was a hotbed of spies and intrigue. What brought Otto von Wächter to your attention? And where did you start to piece the story together? It was an accidental encounter. I was writing another book called East West Street, in which I was dealing with four men, one of whom was Hans Frank, who had been Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer and was then the governor general of Nazi-occupied Poland, the whole of it, who also found himself on trial in the famous uh, Nuremberg, the famous case with Hermann Goering and others. And I came to know Hans Frank's son, Nicholas Frank, who's a journalist, a remarkable person. We've become actually pretty good friends. And one day, Nicholas said to me, Philippe, you're interested in Lemberg. The governor of Lemberg in District Galicia, as you mentioned, Rory, was Otto Wächter. Would you like to meet his son? And one thing led to another. We started off, I wrote a piece for the Financial Times magazine, a profile, which they gave the title, My Father, the Good Nazi. (laughs) And uh, then we made a film for BBC Storyville, uh, My Nazi Legacy. And then in the middle of filming, Horst von Wächter and uh, Nick Frank got into a bit of a disagreement. And we went to Ukraine and we went to a commemoration of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, hundreds of people in Waffen-SS uniforms cavorting around the hills of Western Ukraine. What an extraordinary (laughs) event. Not a happy day. Horst loved it, Nick hated it. And on an on-camera interview, I said to I was questioning Nick Frank, and he said, you know what, I think Horst could be a new kind of Nazi, which I don't think he is. Horst got very upset and asked me, how do I prove that I'm not a Nazi, which is an interesting question. I mean, anyone who spends any time in court knows that proving a negative is always tough. Um, And I came up with the idea that he, he had this huge family archive, his parents' letters, diaries and everything. I said, why don't you give them to a museum? Nazis don't give that kind of material to a museum he did and in that material was all the documentary evidence from 1945 the moment he escaped to the moment he got to Rome hoping to get to Argentina on the rat line and dies and in that material we were it took four years 
able to uncover the Cold War network that existed. You're absolutely right to focus on Rome. I hadn't really appreciated this. I know Rome pretty well. I didn't realize in the post-war years, it was the front line of the Cold War. Why? Because there was a big struggle between the Christian Democrats and the communists for control. And the Americans and the British worried that if the communists were elected, that would become a sort of landing spot for the Soviets in Western Europe. And so they channeled huge amounts of resources. And it was in that context that a pretty unholy alliance was created between the British and the Americans, former Nazis, former Italian fascists, <laughs> and the Vatican. I mean, this is probably Dave's bread and butter, but I was frankly pretty surprised. Well, it's extraordinary. And at the heart of it was, it was Operation Los Angeles, wasn't it? And this oh extraordinary pivot oh where, <laughs> where the, the Nazi fugitives, uh, yes, they were still being pursued by the Nazi hunters and by those seeking justice, but also they they are a useful asset to the, the allies, the Americans in particular, in the new war against communism. I was pretty sceptical, I have to say, when I first stumbled across this material. And, you know, I'm a courtroom lawyer, so I like seeing things in black and white. I want evidence, I want testimony, I want documents, I don't believe in rumours. So I worked with a wonderful academic in Florida, Norman Goda, and he is the country's leading expert on CIA and CIC archives from that period, an amazing bloke. He said, leave it with me. He ends up finding for me Project Los Angeles, which is, you know, you can get it on the web now. It's like a 30-page document. It's an unbelievable read. The head of Project Los Angeles is a, a U.S. Army character. I've got to know his son very well, brilliantly named Thomas Lucid. Okay, And you can't <laughs> invent it. And Thomas Lucid is charged with creating a network to infiltrate the Soviets in Rome and around Italy. Who does he hire? So his chief source becomes a guy called Karl Haas, a Nazi SS mass murderer. Pause there. You know, like, why are the Americans and the Brits hiring this character to be their chief source? He then hires some subsources, eight in total. Three of them are Nazis. Three Italian fascists. One is the Secretary General of the Italian Fascist Party, who is in prison, but at the same time spying for the Americans. And the other two, I mean, you could have really blown me over with a feather, Vatican officials, <laughs> a, a, an Austrian bishop, Alois Hudal, who helped Mengele, Prieb, Cahas escape to South America. And then most unbelievably of all, Pope Pius XII's chief spokesperson for the press, an Italian cardinal, is a spy for the Americans. Dave, this is your kind of world, <laughs> not mine. I was so bemused by all of this that I had to go and have a natter with my neighbour about what on earth was going on. Well, we'll come to that because you are the master of, of revelation as the story develops. But <laughs> it, it, within that context, I mean, wheels within wheels, you mention both Carl Haas and Thomas Lucid. <laughs> of course, Thomas Lucid recruits Carl Haas this former Nazi to work for the Americans. And then we discover that Karl Haas's daughter marries the illegitimate son of his handler, Thomas Lucid. I mean, this yes. most extraordinary nexus. I mean, you mentioned your source, your primary source. You go through this with this remarkable character, Horst Fichter, who is Otto's son. The contrast you say there between your former acquaintance who had spent a lifetime coming to terms with the fact that his father was a Nazi war criminal and Horst, who seems to have spent much of his life trying to prove his father's innocence. And you, it's a curious relationship you have with, with Horst. How, how would you describe that relationship and how it developed? Complicated, is what <laughs> I'd say. So I mentioned earlier the various sort of elements of this project, you know, an article, a film, a podcast. And it would be the same procedure each time. The, the article will be published Horse would say, it's dreadful, it's wrong, you've missed out all the best bits about my dad, can't have anything more to do with you. And a couple of months later, he'd be back. And then the film, he hated the film. He said it, it had the wrong title. The title of the film was My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. He says, no, the title's all wrong. It should be What Our Fathers Did and Did Not Do. 
he's got a sense of humor and then the podcast he hated that and and now the book he's on a real roll and he's recently just put out a very long missive of, uh, on philip sands's lies and all the good oh really that, that he left out and but oh, I, my word. I was with him and i said horse show me the bits that i left out and of course, there aren't any because we went very carefully through all of the material. Now, I, I mean, it's probably because I'm a courtroom lawyer that you do learn as one of the golden rules. Almost, you know, in your role too, Rory, as an interviewer, you treat people with respect and courtesy. You don't shout at them. You don't scream at them. You don't tell them off. You're not rude to them. You listen patiently. People are pretty amazed that I remain patient with Horst, but I do. I sort of like him. He, he is, in a sense, a victim of that period. He was six years old when his dad died. And, you know, his family imploded at the end of the war. And we often don't think about that cast of characters, the, the children of perpetrators. I mean, it's even more so in relation to Hans Frank. Can you imagine what it is like to have a dad who is hanged at Nuremberg for the murder of four million human beings, which is what happened to Hans Frank. I mean, living with that burden is almost impossible to imagine. And I often ask myself, actually, how would I feel about my dad if he murdered, well, 100,000 people, never mind four million people? Would I, would I still love my dad? Would I hate my dad? And, and I have to put my hand on my heart and say, I don't know. So into the whole storyline, we have to put the human element, that mm. it's not just about you know, the facts of horror, but it is, he was a kid and he was on the receiving end. This goes absolutely to the heart and the fascinating thing about this whole story is, is that in a sense, he had two fathers, didn't he? The Nazi who was responsible for the murder and the execution of hundreds of thousands of people under his watch. And on the other hand, you've got the loving, tender father writing these letters and the curious thing about humanity is that this is the same person, that we seem to have this extraordinary ability to, to compartmentalise you know, extreme evil and mundane family life. I think that's the complexity and that's what's so interesting. I never describe either Hans Frank or Otto Wächter as monsters because they weren't just monsters. They did monstrous things. But they were also capable of decency, generosity, love, humanity, grace, and, and they were highly cultured, highly intelligent individuals. And I think this is the heart of the challenge, is how do regular, reasonably decent folk get involved in doing such terrible things? How does this happen? It's something I face in my casework the whole time. You as a, a prosecutor in, in war crimes. As a, yeah, as a litigator in international crime cases, in war crimes cases, you're sitting with someone who is accused of having done terrible things, but actually they're rather genial and they've got a good sense of humour and they're quite warm and cosy. I mean, one of the things I, I love about Bricksmith is it has this sort of rather mundane title and we talked about it as, as, as liaison. I suppose the title was almost to deflect attention from the fact that spies were being deployed inside the eastern zone. But despite that bureaucratic sounding title, I mean, there was a real element of danger there. I mean, people got killed doing what you were doing. Did you live in fear of your life? Well, the job had its moments. What really takes over, is, of course, is, is that the entire crew was completely professional. We did our homework before we left Berlin. We knew exactly the targets we were tasked to go and look at and what we were expected of us. And so as a crew, very much like any sort of mini special forces crew, we would all make a decision beforehand as to what we were going to do. Because as you rightly said, our lives sometimes depended on it. We did a lot of what ifing, you know, what if this happens, what if that happens. If you take all the risk down to its minimum level it sort of takes away the fear. So it, it's not fear. It, it's almost excitement at what yes. you might gain. And it was always a risk versus gain approach that, that we took. What was the closest you actually came to capture? <laughs> the Soviet troops and the East Germans were tasked with, if they saw a military mission vehicle, they would try to detain us. I guess the hairiest one was, was when me and the tour officer were outside the vehicle uh, trying to take some photography of a target and the Soviets attacked our car and he drove off to draw them away from us and meant we had to spend the next 12 hours then behind the lines, as it were, escaping and evading. 
But, you know, even, even at those times, we already knew. The driver knew the emergency RVs that we had to go to. He knew what to do. And even though they shot at the vehicle and he wrecked the tyres by crashing the vehicle, all of that was all taken into account. And me and the tour officer hid. And then when we knew he wasn't coming back, we went and made a phone call later on in the night and found a publican who very kindly let us into his pub, knowing what the what the repercussions would be for him and his family really? for taking shelter of what was military spies. You know, all of that showed really the best and the worst in humans. I mean, within an hour of making the phone call, the area was flooded with secret police looking for us. How did that happen? I mean, did you, did you knock on the door of a pub? Or, I mean, that's... And, and so at that moment, you, it could have gone either way? Yeah. And of course, what you should know about East Germany before the war came down was at nine o'clock at night, everything stopped. Yes. There was no discotheques yes. or whatever. Yes. Everybody, the pubs had like what we would call in the West lock-ins. Yes. So when we when we knocked on this door and it was like a little slit opened, you know, yes. and, and this face looked at us and we said, you know, that we were military officers, British officers, and um, we'd like to make a phone call. Did they have a telephone? They then opened the door and bear in mind, this was like February 1987. So it was, it was pretty, and was snow on the ground. It was freezing. So they took us in and it was that age old thing, Rory, that, that, you know, people always go for the underdogs, you know, and yeah. we must have looked fairly bedraggled <laughs> and that. <laughs> so not only did they take us in, they gave us a drink and the pub was full of, of the locals all having a lock in. And then we were shown to the phone and say within, within 30 minutes of making the call, into the into the embassy in Berlin, the area was flooded with Stasi looking for us. You know, we stayed with the landlord for you know after we made the call, and then we said, "Look, we're going to leave because we don't want to be caught here in your pub." So we went and hid in a bus shelter on the outskirts of the village until we were picked up by our own people about two o'clock, three o'clock the next morning. Goodness, thirty odd years later, I had the opportunity to go back to that pub and meet the landlord's wife who was there on the night when we went in there. And unfortunately, Otto, her husband, had died two years before. But the officer who was with me had been there two years before and met Otto. And Otto recognised him as soon as he opened the door. It's extraordinary. I mean, the same thing, I think, happened to happened to you, Philippe, didn't it? When, when you find these, you think so much time has passed that you think, well, th- these characters are, are, are dead. or, or the, and, and when you find that there's one that is still alive, it really does bring it to life. In the rat line, I'm in particular talking about one of the characters, the guy who helped Otto Vester escape. I was pretty surprised at a certain point, about 2015 now, 2006, 2016, I've finally gone through all of these documents and I've worked out how Vestia escaped in the Austrian mountains, but he was helped by a young Waffen-SS soldier called Burkhard Hartmann. Burkhard Hartmann was a mountain killer. He was in an SS division that operated in Italy and Yugoslavia, and his job was surviving in high altitude and killing partisans, communists, and Jews. His unit killed many, many such people. And now I was confronted with the following situation. I wanted to know about him. I said to Horst, tell me about Burkhard Hartmann. What was he like? Why did he help your dad? So on and so forth. And Horst looked at me. I'll never forget this. He looked at me and said, well, Philippe, I can answer all your questions or we can telephone him. <laughs> but that was a bit of a surprise because it was 2017, 72 years after Ratman and Vechter were in the mountains. And I did not expect him to be alive, but he was. And so we toddled off to Germany. It was extraordinary. And I met Buko, who, of course, was a genial and lovely old man who liked his tea and chocolate cake and who had never talked about what happened during the war. This is, you know, the situation right today. We've got trials going on in Germany as we speak of guards and camp attendants and various other individuals who were involved in not such nice things. 100 years old, 97 years old, they look cosy and cuddly, but actually 70 years ago, they weren't so cosy and cuddly and they were up to other things. And we have to keep our mind on that. It's quite extraordinary. During that time, the late 40s, as I say, uh, when Otto Vetter is on the run, there are also British intelligence officers working in Austria and in Italy. And one of these went on to be known to millions of people, of course, as, as the author, John le Carré, 
who you knew very well? I have had many great fortunes in my life, but one of them is being the neighbour for 20 years of David Cornwall, a.k.a. John le Carre. I mean, he lived around the corner. I got to know him very well. We would each read our works and so on and so forth. I went to his memorial service and sitting there, and there were a lot of people there, it was a very private event, but sitting there, I think we all had the same feeling of just how blessed and fortunate we were to have crossed his path to, you know, to have spent time with him. Um, I had a particular role in his life. He despised lawyers. And you will notice <laughs> in many of his books, there is some awful, ghastly lawyer. And my role for the last 20 years with his novels was to check that they had been accurately portrayed, not to deal with their character or what they did, but how they spoke, how they dressed. So he He'd turn up on the front door, he'd ring the doorbell and he'd open the door and he'd be standing there holding the manuscript and he'd just pass it over, usual procedure, <laughs> usual procedure. And, and, and I, you know, for the three pages on the lawyers, I'd have to read the whole blooming thing, 300 pages, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And then I'd make my comments, no, a lawyer wouldn't say that or a lawyer would, you know, not wear those kinds of clothes or you've got to change it a bit. And, and we'd talk and he'd take some of my comments and, and, and others he wouldn't. But, but in the relation to the rat line, he helped me a lot. He read a lot of the things that I would write in draft on other books. And he helped me in some of my cases. If I wanted to find someone who was from the British intelligence services to have a private conversation, he would make the introduction. And I had more than one basement conversation in the Athenaeum with some character who will remain nameless, telling me what the thinking was in relation to certain things. But anyway, on the rat line, I called him up and I said, look, I'm a bit confused. I, I thought the British were prosecuting Nazi war criminals after the war, not hiring them. He said, send me a few documents, bring a few cakes and we'll have tea. And I did just that. I turned up and he, he was very rigorous. He did a lot of research and he had gone into the whole thing, but he stunned me with his opening words. He said, well, Philippe, this is all very interesting, but it's particularly interesting for me because I was there in Graz (laughs) as a young British soldier involved in interrogating Germans looking for Nazis. And I said, what, to prosecute them? He said, no, to hire them, to recruit them. (laughs) I said, what do you mean to recruit them? He said, well, we wanted their Rolodexes. They knew who the Soviets were. They knew who the spies were. And we wanted them on our side. And I said, what, even if they were mass, mass, mass murderers? He said, yeah, they didn't care. So it was very perplexing. As a young soldier, I'd been taught as a young man to hate the Nazis. And all of a sudden, they're our new best friends. So it was, as he said, very perplexing. He'd been called to turn on a sixpence. Most of our young listeners won't know what that means. I, mm. I'm old enough to know what it means. Um, you mentioned his his voice. I think let's. I think we just just hear a little bit to remind ourselves. I I could listen to him forever. For my national service, I was a field security officer stationed in Graz in 1949. I was a what a 20 year old officer, second lieutenant, attached to field security in Graz in Austria, and we were mainly obsessed with the Russian part of Austria as it then was. But we were also supposedly Nazi hunters. And what was quite clear, even in those days, was when you actually identified somebody who was a wanted figure of some sort with a a disagreeable past, with a hateful past, there was a kind of question mark about his usefulness. We were already looking at the communist enemy. To me, it was bewildering. I'd been brought up to hate Nazism and that stuff. And all of a sudden to find that we turned on a sixpence and the great new enemy was to be the Soviet Union was very, very perplexing. How wonderful to hear his voice again. I, I think, as you will know, um, I had made a, uh, a programme about uh, my friendship with him. And in the making of that programme, I learned what I did not know while he was alive, that right at the end of his life, he acquired Irish citizenship. He became an Irishman. Uh, through his maternal grandmother. And it was very, very moving, I have to say, to arrive at the place of the memorial to find an Irish flag and only an Irish flag. He had really, in the last years, grown very disillusioned with what had happened to Britain and the United Kingdom. And I've often wondered whether that is in some way 
related even to those early years to the duplicities I mean, I've got no evidence that that is what happened, but certainly in the last years of his life, from Iraq onwards, which of course was a massive failing uh, of intelligence, he became very, very disillusioned about what had happened in Britain. But also, I think on a, on a wider scale, I mean, we're seeing this extraordinary spectacle that the suddenly that the strong men are coming back, whether it's you know through populist nationalism, whether it's through Trump or the Brexiteers, if you like, but Bolsonaro and Orban in Hungary and Duterte in the Philippines and 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 on and on. And they're all sort of undermining and dismantling those organizations, institutions like the United Nations, NATO, European Union that were put in place to undo the damage done by the last generation of strongmen, the people that we're talking about now. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary time now just as it was then to see, um, and in, in a sense, we're sort of going in the opposite direction, that uh, the, the 1940s and 50s were about coming to terms with the past and reconciling and reparations and, and all of that and justice. And now it's kind of maybe a, a generation on, we forget. Well, I think what's happening, I think it's a very important moment we're going through now. Again, I'm, I'm acutely conscious of this. I, I just made a, another a program about the Nuremberg trial, its legacy after 75 years. And I managed to find three or four people who'd actually been at the trial. I mean, as you can imagine, uh, one was 97, one was 95, one was 101. Wonderful human beings. But it was amazing to hear them talk about what it was like to be in courtroom 600. And um, one, actually, um, the president of the Nuremberg Tribunal, Sir Geoffrey Lawrence, had a daughter who was an intelligence officer at Bletchley. And she was sent by Bletchley to Nuremberg to interview, uh, it was either Yodel or Keitel, two of the you know, German army uh, defendants. And she didn't tell them she was <laughs> the daughter of the presiding judge. Uh, they had to actually deal with a. It was a very interesting job that she had. Um, they had sent some some wrongful information about uh, invasions that the British had been planning, and they had come across a note of, initialed by Adolf Hitler, which apparently proved that they had duped the Führer on what their <laughs> plans were. So there was just a misintelligence, uh, misinformation, but. Um, that generation is dying out. They are just about to leave us. And I think that we are left now in a situation there where there is no longer anyone around who really remembers what it was and what the intention was in 45 to create a new world. And I do think that is contributing to the rise of the strong men, of populism, of nationalism, of xenophobia. And I think we're in for a pretty difficult time. I think this is, history doesn't repeat itself exactly but we do tend to go round and round in sort of circles i'm pretty worried about where this is heading i think as somebody said history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes john de carey he was there working for the british military in the late 40s dave butler you were working likewise for the british military in berlin in the 1980s a similar hotbed of spies a similarly extraordinary and fascinating moment in history, the height of the Cold War, really. Are you hearing lots of echoes of your own existence behind enemy lines, if you like? What's come across to me, uh, listening to Philippe, is there are some synergies to be drawn, but, but not necessarily uh, in the way that you might think. He talks about how it took four years to gather all this information together. Well, again, we were doing a very similar thing in the former East Germany, and in particular, the scavenging of Soviet military rubbish dumps. It was called Operation Tomahawk at the time, and it was a, an absolute secret operation that was carried out by us and the Americans and the French. The Soviets were very poor, their military, at throwing their rubbish out. And so we would spend hours and hours in the dead of night with minute torchlights and infrared apparatus in these rubbish dumps, the Soviets, for some reason known only to them, were very short of toilet paper. And so therefore, nine times out of ten, when they were out in the field on exercise and they needed to go to the toilet, they would wipe their bums on letters from home, signals, information. I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, there's the expression where there's muck, there's brass. But literally, 
<laughs> there was crap. There was high level intelligence. Absolutely. And one intelligence agency told us that that if Bricksmith did nothing else but scavenge rubbish dumps for their entire lifetime, that would be worth its weight in gold. What would you say was the most valuable piece of information that you uncovered? The most valuable piece was not actually on a rubbish dump. It was actually on a training area. We had been tasked in, in 1987 to get this piece of technical equipment which had been installed on, on the latest Soviet tank called an explosive reactive armour box. So we hatched a plan, uh, and I was the project manager for it, to climb on board a train as it left a training area and undo this box. These boxes were, were on the tank and, and they were designed so that if a round hit this box, it would explode. So a kinetic energy round fired by the West at a Soviet tank, this box would explode as the round hit it and it would take all of the kinetic energy out of the round. So the round then would not penetrate the tank. And what our intelligence agencies wanted to really know was what was inside this box. We hatched this plan to climb on board a train in the dark with this spanner, get the box off, and then we would then jump off the train and join our vehicle some 10 kilometres up the road and then bring the box back. In the event, I was at a training area watching this latest tank firing on the ranges. And after they finished firing the day, they all pulled off. We then went on and scavenged. And I was walking in one of the tank pits and I just saw this little piece of metal sticking up out the ground, pulled it up and it was one of these ERA boxes. <laughs> Extraordinary. A bit like, you know, when they say, you know, if you won the lottery, you would hear all this music around you, you know, because you just knew that something momentous had happened. Well, that was what it was like for me. Had they left by then? Were there, I mean, you're behind enemy lines here. How did you get it back? They'd left for the day. They'd had a day's fire and we went on there afterwards and they left their ranges unguarded and they left <laughs> numerous things behind. If a round they were firing in a tank misfired, they would just throw it over the side. The idea being that the Russian quartermaster would come along the next day and pick it all up. But of course, we were in there straight away and got there first. And it went from the low level to the high level. So letters from home, from the soldiers, talking about their experiences in the barracks and uh, straining antifreeze through socks to extract the alcohol <laughs> through to, at the other end of the scale, finding the latest Soviet tank boards which gave all of the information about the inside of the tank, that you know, the ammunition, how it loaded, and all the rest of it. And all the time you were being watched, and all. What was it like being tailed? The MFS or the the German the Stasi, as we called them, East German Secret Police, used to monitor the missions wherever we went. Uh, and our house, our mission house in Potsdam, had a, an East German Volks Police post outside the front gate, and we always had to go to the mission house first before we deployed. We could have anything up to 10 Stasi cars at one time following one vehicle. They all tended to use the, the famous Lada <laughs> or the Lada Reaver as their four-wheel <laughs> drive, which actually, against the Mercedes Glendewagen, was no match at all. So if you have a Lada on your tail... You had a particular technique for, for shaking them off around, around bends. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, the vehicle, our vehicles were, were very technically developed, you know, under armour for, for going across country, extended fuel tanks, so we could go hundreds of miles without filling up. And, and the other fascinating thing was the light array system. We could make the vehicle in the dark look like a Trabant with various headlight configurations. We could isolate the brakes. So we could play tricks with the vehicles. And one of the things that we used to do was if we were being tailed at high speed, particularly on bends, we would isolate the brakes. So we would brake hard to go around the bend. And the car following us, of course, would think that they could take the bend at the same speed we did and didn't see our brake lights come on and then and then would find themselves hurtling off into the undergrowth. So, Philippe, there's Dave talking a little bit about his time behind enemy lines. Likewise, Otto Wächter, it was very important that people didn't know who he was or where he was fleeing to. Did he have any contact with, with his family? How was he able to maintain a some kind of support system of contacts or acquaintances? Well, on the 9th of May 1945, of course, the war in Europe comes to an end and he disappears off the face of the earth. He has one last phone conversation with his wife. He asks her to destroy all his work documents and she throws them into Lake Zell with their oldest child. And he then disappears. 
She then receives word that he's not so far away, hiding in the Austrian mountains an hour or two from Salzburg. And every two or three weeks for the next three and a half years, they rendezvous at a different place. In fact, I've been there. It's extraordinary that he survived above 2,000 metres altitude, because particularly in the winter, that would have been very tough. The people from that area tell me he could not have survived without active help, but there's no record in the archive of who in the surrounding towns uh, was helped. But interestingly, since the book came out in German a few months ago, I've had a number of invitations to give book talks in some of those small towns, because there are people with family stories. He stays there until the autumn of 48, and then decides he's going to, he's heard about this thing called the Reich Migratory Route, which is the path from Italy to South America. Eichmann, Mengele, lots of famous names that we, that we know about. In fact, we also now know that the Americans knew all about it, and they were sort of using it as a recruitment tool, because as people were making their way onto it, they could identify them and decide whether to use them or not. So he makes his way to Rome. In that period, we do know everything that's happened because he wrote to his wife every two or three weeks, but they were very worried about the uh, military censors. And I think Salzburg may have been in the British zone. And then, so there are, on a lot of the correspondence, there are British military censors stamps. And so they write in code, no person mentioned in the letter is mentioned by name. It's HG1, HG2, the religious gentleman, the mm. old comrade. And that's mm. why it took so long to decipher. Uh, David, you would have been very proud of us <laughs> with our detective work, trying to work out who these, who on earth these characters were. But he, he had an address book. And so what we were able to do was to cross refer from the address book. And basically it took four years to work out absolutely who they were and work out the network of people who helped. And that was for me very, very fascinating. It was a very well-organized network. But of course, most remarkably of all, he believed that he was completely incognito. He's taken on a new name. He's no longer Otto Wächter. He's now Alfredo Reinhardt, mm -hmm. which is actually some mate of his who was also an SS officer who has escaped to Argentina and uh, in 47. And he's taken over that fellow's identity card, but changed certain factors, date of birth, the photograph's different. We've, we've got all of those documents. Interestingly, just last month, the book came out in Argentina, and within a, within a week, I got an extremely irate email from the granddaughter of the real Alfred Reinhardt <laughs> saying, you know, it's not true. My grandfather was a wonderful man. He didn't get up to all these things you say he got up to. He did. Yes. I ended up sending the granddaughter the SS file <laughs> that we'd found in Berlin. <laughs> of this Have you character. heard back? <laughs> so we've worked out the network, and what is striking about it is not only how extensive it was, but that the moment he arrived in Rome on the 29th of April, 1949, he was met by the religious gentleman. I'm not going to give away too much here. The religious gentleman was Bishop Alois Hudal, who was one of the eight sub-agents in Project Los Angeles. So within an hour of his arrival in Rome, the Americans know exactly where he is. And they know his false name. They know where he's living. And they don't do anything. They're keeping tabs on him. They don't arrest him. They're watching who he's establishing contact with. David, <laughs> David's, I'm sure, smiling away because he recognizes the techniques that are going on here. And, um, and of course, I'm not of that world. So for me, it was wonderful to get these insights into what was going on. What happened was we took the private material, the letters, the diaries, and then we had from Professor Goder in Florida, all of the CIC documents, and we were able to cross-fertilise that they knew exactly what he was doing. And this was fascinating to me. So, Philippe, is there a sequel? You, I mean, you've obviously read it. You know it well. You will have picked up. There is a Otto Wächter was a minor character in East West Street, and there is a minor character in the Rat Line who is called Walter Ralph. Now, Walter Ralph was another senior SS officer, very senior indeed, and a great mate of Wächter's. He did manage to escape. He goes to Syria. He actually occupies the same monk's cell in the Vigna Pia monastery that Wächter lived in, makes his way to Syria, writes to Wächter and says, Syria is a terrible place for Germans. Don't come here. You'd be much better off in South Africa and Argentina. They're organized places. None of the mayhem in, in the Arab world. He goes then from Syria to Ecuador, where he meets an absolutely fantastic young 
Chilean military man who's in Ecuador training the Ecuadorian military to do God knows what, that man happens to be called Augusto Pinochet. Tells him he's in, we're in the wrong country. Come to Chile. We like your sort. Now, what you need to know about Walter Ralph is Walter Ralph was an intelligence officer for the SS, and he was also the man who invented the mobile gas chamber. And he ends up in Chile. He becomes a businessman. And then in 1973, he is said to have joined the Chilean intelligence services when Pinochet, his mate has become, you know, coup d'etat, becomes the president of Chile. And there's a new rather sinister intelligence service called the DINA. I wonder, David, whether you ever came across the DINA. They operated for about five years and they did a lot of very nasty things. And so the next book is the double story of Ralph in Chile, Pinochet in London, because, of course, Pinochet arrives in London. You'll remember this, Rory. This is when we were hanging out together. Gets arrested in London for crimes against humanity and genocide. And there is a fantastic series of legal proceedings in Britain. And Ralph's story is part of that one. Did you prosecute Pinochet? Was that one of your... I mean, four days after he was arrested, I actually went to my grandfather's funeral in France. And on the way there, I got a phone, early days of mobile phones. I got a call from my chambers saying... Great news, Philippe. Pinochet's lawyers have been on to us. They want to hire you to work with the, with the general. <laughs> so, you know, we have in Britain the cab rank principle. We're like taxi drivers. We'll act for anyone. And, um, and so I didn't accept, actually, because it was a special day. I got to the cemetery. My wife was there. And I told her with some excitement that I might be acting for Senator Pinochet in the proceedings before the English courts. And she just looked at me and said, if you act for Senator Pinochet, I will divorce you. <laughs> and you need to understand that on my wife's side, she is the descendant, the granddaughter of a Spanish military intelligence person um, <laughs> who had been on the wrong side, the losing, the was on the right side, but the losing side in the Spanish Civil War and came to England where he was taken in by the Elmhursts of Dartington <laughs> and became a Totnes family. <laughs> I mean, you I'm, can't invent this stuff, honestly. No, I mean, what a generation we are. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But are there other rat lines? Are there other people out there from other regimes? I mean, your work as a prosecutor, I mean, you've been involved in, in trials. Is this story being repeated? It must be. Dave probably knows more than I do. But I mean, surely there is a rat line right now out of Afghanistan. Surely there is in Afghanistan a way out for people that in which certain people in the West will know exactly what is going on and they are spiriting people in and out of the country in ways that, of course, I can't even begin to know about or imagine. But I would have thought in any place where there is conflict of this kind and sharply opposed sides, the Western intelligence services will be involved in facilitating exfiltration, as Le Carre called it, and probably Dave calls it also. I'm acutely aware of this. I do a lot of work for many governments around the world. I proceed on the basis that every single one of my communications, including this one, Rory, is mm. being listened to, watched, or is accessible to the intelligence services of Interalia, the United Kingdom, France, China, Russia, the United States, and no doubt a myriad of others. And you should proceed on exactly the same assumption, Rory, because that is what's going on. They are everywhere. <laughs> That's a very chilling thought to end on. I, I think Philippe's absolutely correct. And the only reason people like me can come on, on programmes like this and talk about this sort of stuff is because it's outside the 30-year rule. And I think it's sad to say, Philippe, but we're probably going to have to wait another 30 years before we find out about what happened in Afghanistan and, yeah. and exactly the yeah. routes. And I have always said in intelligence, anything you can imagine is probably happening. Philippe, do you have time for fiction yourself or do you find that the real life stories that you're oh, pursuing are no... I'm an avid, avid reader of fiction. I read Le Carre, I read Ben McIntyre, I read Roland Phillips, um, but also I particularly like fiction which crosses the line between fact and fiction. So one of my favourite writers, I'm going to put a plug for him because neither of you may have heard of him, is a remarkable Spanish writer called Javier Cercas. C-E-R-C-A-S, and he writes about these kinds of stories 
they're novels, but they're always based on real true stories. And he's a fantastic writer. So I'm extremely, yeah, a lot of time for a lot of time for fiction. I've got a fiction friend who's trying to persuade me to write one, but I'm too scared to do it. But Ratline reads like a, a brilliant novel. Did Cornwell Le Carre help you with the construction of it? He did. I learned my techniques from him. I learned to put little clues right in the first pages, and the intelligent reader understands that every word is there for a reason, and they try to work out why you've put that line in. And that's what he did. He treated his readers with absolute intelligence. He recognised they were really smart, and they were hard working in reading the books and they were trying to be ahead of the curve and working out from the clues he was putting in his text where this was headed. I loved your placement of the word swimming in the very, very first episode. That will be significant in the story right, right. of Otto Wechter. He loved swimming. He, he loved, loved swimming. swimming. So there we are, two extraordinary times in history really the beginning of the cold war and its continuation just before the fall of the berlin wall philippe sands dave butler thank you so much for joining us this week on the spying game next time on spy scapes the spying game in our season finale rory is joined by former cia officer and creator of the americans joe weisberg and former u.s-based kgb agent jack barsky There you are, an illegal, a family in Germany, a new family in America, working for the KGB. And who moves in next door? <laughs> the FBI. <laughs> I joined thinking I would have a lot of trouble lying to people about what I did. And it took about a week for me to get used to it. And it went from being very uncomfortable and strange to just completely normal. the question i said am i under arrest and the answer was uh, just one word no and then about a minute later i said so what took you so long <laughs> <laughs> i had been playing a game and the game is called life i took nothing really seriously i just played and i knew that you know somehow i would always come out a winner The Spying Game is available now, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen to episodes a week early ad-free by subscribing to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.